Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. We've been going through this book, studying through it together. And it's all about John writing to a church that's in the midst of suffering and in the midst of persecution and in the midst of trials and tribulations. So that got me thinking, what would you say, what would I say, what would we say to a church that was just about to go through suffering and persecution? This is a very real issue. We have brothers and sisters around the world, in Asia, in the Middle East, who every day are fearing for their lives because they know that there are people that are in their midst that are out to get them. We see this on the news. We see bombings that are happening in Egypt. We see people that are being beheaded for their love for Jesus. What would you say to them before that was going to happen? What would you say to them after? What would you say to a church that experienced persecution on a massive level? What would you say? I think that one pastor, a Romanian pastor by the name of Josef Tzon, would give us help in what to say based off of what he said in moments of being persecuted, interrogated by six men who were wanting to take his life because he was spreading the gospel. Pastor Tzon said this, to his interrogators, to those who wanted to kill him. What's taking place here between you and me is not an encounter between you and me. It's an encounter between my God and me. My God is teaching me a lesson. I don't know what it is. Maybe he wants, me, maybe he wants to teach me several lessons. But I only know this, sir, that you will only do to me what he wants you to do to me. And you will not go one inch further because you are simply an instrument in the hands of my God. You're simply an instrument. In uh, another incident, he said uh, that when he was being interrogated, he told the officer who was threatening to kill him, I'm going to kill you because of what you're doing with the gospel. He said this, listen to these words. Sir, let me explain how I see this issue. Just think about the confidence that you have to have in the gospel to say these words. Sir, let me explain how I see this issue. Your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. So here's how it works. You know that my sermons on tape have spread all over the country, and if you kill me, those sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. Everyone will know I died for my preaching, and everyone who has a tape will pick it up and say, I'd better listen again to what this man preached because he really meant it. He sealed it with his life. So, sir, my sermons will speak ten times louder than before. I will actually rejoice in this supreme victory if you kill me. The interrogator sent him home. <laughs> what do you do with that? There was another officer who was interrogating a friend of this pastor. And the officer said, We know that Mr. Tzone would love to be a martyr, but we are not that foolish to fulfill his wishes. Pastor Stone says, I stopped to consider the meaning of that statement. I remembered how for many years I had been afraid of dying. 
I had kept a low profile because I wanted badly to live. I had wasted my life in inactivity. But now that I had placed my life on the altar and decided I was ready to die for the gospel, they were telling me that they wouldn't kill me. I could go wherever I wanted in the country and preach whatever I wanted, knowing I was safe. As long as I tried to save my life, I was losing it. Now that I was willing to lose it, I had found it. Are these the words of a crazy man? These are the words of a man who has gone insane, or are these the words of a man who knows something that we think we know, but for him, it has gone deep into his DNA, and it's changed his life? What provides him with such an unshakable confidence in the work that God is doing in the face of persecution? What would give us unshakable confidence? I believe that these next verses that we're going to study this morning tell us exactly that, what the foundation of our hope and our unshakable confidence must be. And as John is writing to a church that is in the midst of persecution, we can hear it and understand he's writing to tell them, you have a hope, you have an assurance, you have a confidence that nothing, not even death, can take away from you. So let's pray and Ask God's blessing on our time after we read these verses together. Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us, and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Father, I pray that you would give us an exalted view of Christ this day to prepare us for that day of suffering that we will go through. That we would have an unshakable confidence the way that Pastor Sohn has to say, I've lost my life already. What can you do to me? I've already died. My life is hidden with Christ. What can mere man do to me? God, I pray that you would prepare us, encourage us, and show us Christ. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our resurrected Savior. Amen. What provides an individual with such unshakable confidence? Uh, Three things that we will see from our text this morning. Number one, beginning in verse 6, the implications of Christ's redemption. The implications of Christ's redemption. This provides for us unshakable confidence. The implications of Christ's 
redemption. Now we have to pick back up uh, where we left off last week, which was in the middle of a sentence. So it's a terrible place to have to break, but we ran out of time. So verse 6, he has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is off of the heels of John saying that Jesus, this has been Trinitarian. We started with the Father who gives us grace and peace in verse 4. He is the one who is, who was, and who is to come. So his isness, his presentness is what John is looking at, uh, not who was, is, and is to come, but he is currently now. He's in your midst. He's holding you together. Yes, he's eternal all the way back in eternity past, and he is to come, not will always be, but is to come, meaning that he is coming. He is coming back to take us home. We talked about the seven spirits, the Holy Spirit before his throne, and then we got into uh, verse 5, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. We talked about how those are quotations of Old Testament passages. To him who loves us, present tense, he currently loves us. And we know that because he released us, past tense, with effects that are ongoing to today from our sins by his blood. If you ever wonder if Jesus loves you, look back to what he did by releasing you from your sins and you will know his love for you. But John doesn't end there. He says in verse 6, he has made us through the implications of the gospel, through what Jesus did at the cross, he has made us to be a kingdom. He's made us. We were not a kingdom. We are not citizens on our own, and we cannot do anything to get ourselves to be citizens. We have to be made citizens. Jesus did not merely save us from sin. He saved us for citizenship. He saved us for something, not just from something, but for something. He adopted us into his family. He saved us to be sons and daughters in his family. He made us citizens of his kingdom, as John's saying. We have become his kingdom. We are living in this moment where his kingdom physically is yet to come, but his kingdom spiritually has been inaugurated through his death and his resurrection. We are in his kingdom, citizens of his kingdom. That's unshakable. This is a kingdom that is not of this world. And therefore, since it is God's kingdom, and he owns it, and he controls it, and he has all power over it, if you are in that kingdom, there's no way that kingdom will ever be destroyed. Not only that, we're also priests. We are, king, we are a kingdom, and we are made to be priests. We're made to be priests. What does it mean to be a priest? A priest in the Old Testament is all about access to God, right? Somebody to mediate between God and man. We need a go-between. We need access to God. Without a priest, you don't have access. Just remember some of the Old Testament figures who tried to get to God without a priest. You remember Saul tried to get to God without a priest, didn't wait for Samuel for the sacrifice, and because of that, the kingdom's taken away from Saul. That's disobedience. You need to have a mediator. You can't just waltz into God's presence on your own. Or think about uh, King Uzziah. Uh, decided I don't need the priests, I'm awesome, I'm all-powerful, over 50 years of reigning and ruling a kingdom with just uh, immense power and righteousness up until that point. Then he walks into the temple and says, I don't need a priest to get access to God, and God strikes him down with leprosy instantly, just right then and there. If you don't have a priest, then you cannot get to God. So God answers our problem of how are we going to get to him. He answers our problem by sending Jesus, who is our great high priest, Jesus is the mediator, the go-between. Now we get to God the Father on the basis of Jesus' work. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. We cannot speak to God the Father on our own. We need a great high priest. But John tells us that there's something more to that. 
we ourselves have become priests. We have become priests. In, in fact, this is a construction in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. And you're going to have to write some of these things down because we won't be able to go to all of these verses just for sake of time. But Exodus 19, verse 6, God says to Israel, I want to make you a kingdom and priests to our God. I want to make you a kingdom and priests. What Israel was supposed to be and they failed to do, God says, now the church, I've made you a kingdom, and he applies it to us universally as the church. You are now a kingdom, and you are priests. So what's a priest designed to do? Think of the Levitical priest, the, the system that God made for man before the Messiah was going to come, for man to mediate between God and man. Priests, the Levites, remember they were a tribe, uh, the tribe of Levi, but they didn't have a location in the land, right? They were scattered throughout. You would just find a place to stay in one of the other tribes, uh, the allotments of land for the other tribes, and you just find, you didn't have a home or, or a, a territory to call your own possession, just like you and me. We are aliens and strangers. We don't have a territory to call our own. This world isn't our home. We've been made priests. The priests in the Old Testament had to be cleansed in very ritualistic ways. So too, God has cleansed us through the washing of the, the regenerating work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We had to be chosen. Priests had to be chosen. You just didn't get to be a priest in the Old Testament. You had to be chosen of the tribe of Levi. We were chosen by God. We were consecrated unto him. There's so many ways in which we as believers in the New Testament era look like priests in the Old Testament era. But the biggest way in which we look like priests in the Old Testament is that we have been made to be priests to bring access to God to those who do not believe. You and I are priests unto a dying world who does not know Jesus. We mediate between a non-believer and God. We have been compelled by the finished work of Jesus on the cross to go out to the world and to tell the world, you can have access to God, but you need to go through Jesus Christ. We are to mediate to them. This is why 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, Every single believer is a chosen priesthood, a kingdom, a royal priesthood together. You are working on God's behalf, designed by God to proclaim His praise and to mediate His message. That's what you and I do as priests unto God. We are made to be priests, and we are, by God's design, to proclaim His praise and to mediate His message. So can I just ask, how... How well are you doing in your work of being a priest, proclaiming God's praise and mediating God's message? Do you go into the world and tell them there is a God worthy of our praise and you need to follow him? That's why John says God has made us to do that. We're a kingdom and we're also priests bringing access to God through the gospel, not through anything we can do, but in the sharing of the gospel to non-believers. And he doesn't just stop there. We are priests to God the Father, and to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. What He has just said, that God Himself has made us to be a kingdom and priests, this is so magnificent that He just resounds in praise. This is a doxology. To God be glory and dominion forever and ever. Forever is uh, the word eon in the Greek. Eon is the longest amount of time in the Greek language. So John takes eon puts an S on it, eons, and then he puts the before it, which intensifies it, the eons, 
and then he puts an and and repeats it. The eons and the eons. There's, there's just no way to even encapsulate the glory that God deserves because of what he's done and the implications of the gospel being worked out in our lives. You could end there. That's, that's all we would need. The implications of the gospel in our lives are all that we would need to have unshakable confidence. But John does not stop there. My question is, why does he feel the need to say more? If you are going through persecution and you hear you are a part of a kingdom that can never be taken away, you are a priest unto God, you are working in his family to encourage other people to come into his kingdom, to come into his family. Why else do we, what else do we need to encourage us to keep our eyes fixed on Christ? I think because there might be some people in the hearing of this scroll that's being read to these seven churches that might be saying something that you and I have thought before. Well, I know what you're saying is true, but our current circumstances and experiences make it seem like it isn't. I know what you're saying is true about the gospel, that God loves me, that he has a wonderful plan for my life, all those different things, but my experiences right now make me feel like that's not true. I know it is true, but it's hard to believe functionally that it's true. God, what are you doing? If we are his people, if we are in his family, if we are citizens of his kingdom, then why are we being slaughtered all day long? What kind of a kingdom is this where you're allowing your citizens to be slaughtered? I think that's why John says there's something else that will give you an even greater depth of unshakable confidence in the face of suffering and persecution. And it's not more knowledge. It's an event that is going to happen. It's an event. So this is point number two. Not only do the implications of Christ's redemption cause us to have an unshakable confidence in God's work and his love for us, but number two, the inevitability of Christ's return. The inevitability of Christ's return. He is coming again and it is inevitable. You cannot stop him. This is verse seven. Behold, John begins with. This is a quotation from Daniel chapter 7. We'll look at it in just a second. But he starts with, Behold, listen, pay attention, see what I'm about to say. This is an announcement. Stop what you're doing and focus on what I'm about to say because it's so amazing. That's what John is saying. Behold, he is coming. He's coming. That word is used nine times in Revelation to refer to Jesus, seven times by Jesus himself to say, I am coming. And the truth of the second coming coming appears in more than 500 verses in the Bible. More than 500 verses. In the New Testament alone, one out of every 25 verses refers to Jesus' second coming. He is coming back. 2 Peter 3, verses 3 through 4 says that there are people that will mock his second coming. Yeah, right, he's not coming back, but he will return. He's on his way. And so John says, behold, he's coming with the clouds. He's coming back. Now, he's coming with the clouds. Turn back to Daniel chapter 7. He's coming with the clouds. This is what John is about to say in verse 7 is really, if I can use a, a fun word, it's a conflation of two verses. It's a mixing together of two verses, one from Daniel 7 and one from Zechariah 12. And this is a mixing together. First, he starts off with Daniel chapter 7. Go down to verse 13. It's 
very interesting what he says. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man, this is Jesus, was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and, uh, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So you can see the, the quotation there. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man is coming. But it's very interesting because what direction are we given to Jesus' coming and going here in this text? We, we just automatically say he's coming from heaven down to earth. But Daniel tells us, one like the Son of Man is coming and he's going up to the Ancient of Days. He's going up. He's leaving earth, going up to heaven. This is not a prophecy about the second coming that Jesus is going to come back to earth. This is a promise that Jesus will inaugurate his kingdom and will sit down at the right hand of the Father and his kingdom will have no end. He's going up to the Father. But Jesus himself is going to use that verse in Matthew chapter 24, verse 30, to say just like Daniel said, the Son of Man's coming back that way. The Son of Man's coming back that way. If you remember in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascends into heaven, fulfilling what Daniel said, he ascends into heaven and he sits down at the right hand of the Father. Remember, once he passes through the clouds, angels show up. And what do the angels say? Do you remember? They say, what are you doing standing here? The same way that the Lord has departed is exactly how he's coming back. So how did he leave? Daniel chapter 7. He left. Behold, he's going back to heaven with the clouds. And that's exactly the way he's going to come back. With the clouds out of heaven to return and to be with us. The kingdom was inaugurated at his ascension. The ascension is so important. It's a fulfillment of Daniel 7. It's a fulfillment of a number of passages in the Bible. But the inauguration of the kingdom happened in Jesus going, ascending into heaven and Jesus said in Matthew 24, and the angels say as well, the exact same way that he leaves, he's coming back. With clouds, clouds frequently symbolize God's presence. Remember, pillar of cloud, the, the clouds symbolize God is here, and he's coming back on the clouds. I know that uh, in my family, we would we'd be driving early in the morning, and there would be clouds, just huge. I believe they're cumulonimbus, but you can ask a younger person that remembers these things. Uh, these huge, huge, billowing clouds, and, and the, the sun would be just streaking through lights, just pouring through, and you could kind of see, but it's almost so glorious that you can't fully stare at it. And I remember my mom would always say, that's probably what it's going to look like. That's what it's going to look like when Jesus comes back. These are glory clouds. These are second coming clouds. In the exact same way that he left, he's coming back. But back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, John doesn't just stop with that quotation. Behold, he's coming with the clouds and, and here's the conflation, here's the second text that he puts in there from Zechariah chapter 12. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. That's not the Romans, that's the Jewish people as a whole. They will see the one that they pierced. And they will mourn. I believe Zechariah chapter 12 tells us they will mourn in repentance over what they've done. And Revelation is going to tell us in the tribulation, Israel on a massive scale ethnically will re receive their Messiah and will be saved. 
This is what Romans chapter 11, verses 25 to 26 says. In the end, on that day, all Israel will be saved. Right now, Israel has rejected their Messiah, and the gospel has gone to the Gentiles. Praise the Lord. We've been grafted into the message that was given to the Jewish people. But in the end, at the end of time, during the tribulation, it's going to flip. The Gentiles are going to harden their hearts against God and reject him, and the Jews will receive their Messiah. So here, John is saying, Jesus is coming back, and when he comes, the promises that were made for Israel will come true. Imagine believers in these churches hearing your hard-hearted Jewish family members who do not believe in Jesus, their great-great-great-grandchildren. There's coming a day when their hearts will be softened, so don't stop being a priest to them. Don't stop giving them the gospel, because there's coming a day when they will receive Christ as Savior. But there's another section of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1. So Zechariah 12, verse 10 is the first part, but Zechariah 13, verse 1 says that all of the earth will mourn over him. A lot of people will split these out to say the Jews will believe, and we know that they will, and then there will be people that will mourn knowing that they are unrepentant and they will be judged. They're mourning in judgment. I'm okay with that. I know that there will be people that will be mourning in judgment. Jesus is coming back. And everyone will see him. And he will come to save and he will come to judge. He's coming back. Remember the first time that he came? We, we just read it. What a, what a beautiful work of God's sovereignty that we just read Luke chapter 2 today. He's coming back again. You remember the first advent was predicted in Scripture. His coming as a little baby was predicted in Scripture, as is his last coming, his second coming. It's predicted in Scripture right here. Both advents were a call to repent. Both advents ultimately focus on the work of the cross. Both advents will result in praise. But there are some differences between his first coming and his second coming. The first coming... He came as a little baby in a manger, lowly, no glory attached to it. Second coming, he's going to come back with the clouds of heaven, the glory of heaven, and everyone will see him. The first coming of Jesus was local, Bethlehem, stuck in one place. The second coming, everybody in the world will know that he's coming. They will see him. At the incarnation, uh, God's glory in Jesus Christ was hidden but in his second coming, it's going to be fully revealed. The first time that Jesus came, he came in utter humiliation. The second time, he's going to return in exaltation. The first time he came to serve, the second time he'll return to be served. The first time he came as the suffering servant, and the second time he will return as the conquering king. He is coming back. And that's why John says, so it is to be, amen. So it is to be. Let it be so. Amen and amen. Let it happen that way. It's coming. He's coming and it's going to happen and there's nobody that can stop him. John doesn't end there. There's one last point that will give us unshakable confidence. And it's point number three, the invincibility of Christ's reign. So we have the implication of Christ's redemption. We have the inevitability of Christ's return. And finally, number three, we have the invincibility of Christ's reign. The invincibility of his reign. Verse eight. Jesus then speaks, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha and Omega, first and last letters in the Greek alphabet. I am the beginning 
and I am the end. You can write down Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6, which says that I'm the first and the last. You can write down Isaiah 48, verse 12, just a reiteration of that. I am the first and I am the last. The first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. That means Jesus is everything that can be said. That means that he is the beginning of all things and he is the end of all things. That means he had no beginning and he will not have an end. That means he defines time. He doesn't have a beginning, so he is the very beginning of everything that exists. He doesn't have an end. He's the end of all things. So logically, all of these things, everything in all of human history builds to him. Everything comes from him and relates to him. He is everything. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Interesting, go back into verse 4. John tells us that that's a description of God the Father from Him who is and who was and who is to come. And now Jesus Himself says, I am the one who is and who was and who is to come. Jesus is God. And he uses the exact same construction. I, I am. I'm in your midst. I'm present with you. He starts with the is-ness of God. I am here. I'm with you. And I'm coming, not who was, who is, and who will be. Uh, who is, who was, and is coming. Hang on. Don't let go of your hope because I'm coming back to get you. That's what Jesus is saying. And he refers to himself as the Almighty to end out verse 8. The Almighty. This affirms his power. Nothing can stop everything he is saying from happening. Nothing can stop it from happening. So we know from the implications of the gospel, his love for us. We know that there is nothing that can stop his second coming, and we know that his reign as king is invincible. Nothing can stop him. One author says it this way, Jesus Christ is the central figure of the opening eight verses of Revelation. He is the source of Revelation in verse 1. He is the channel of the word and the testimony of God in verse 2. His blessings through his revealed word are promised in verse 3. In verse 5, he is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is revealed to be the source of all grace to all those that he loves. He cleanses us from sin through his shed blood. He is the source of our royal priesthood who has the right to gather in himself all glory and dominion forever. He has promised to come with clouds, attended with great display of power and glory, and every eye will see the one who died for men. He is the Almighty One of eternity past and eternity future. If no more had been written than what is contained in this introductory portion of chapter 1, it would have constituted a tremendous restatement of the person and work of Christ, such as found in no comparable section of Scripture. This is John just setting the tone of victory to a church that is being destroyed, and he says, don't fret, don't worry, don't lose heart, don't lose hope. I'm coming back to get you. I'm coming back to get you. There's an inclusion here in the beginning of verse 4. He is uh, the one who is and was and is to come. And at the end of verse 8, he is and was and is to come. So everything that happens in there, Jesus is saying, I'm going to make it happen. But there are two things 
that are clearly expressed as to what Jesus is going to make happen. The first is he's going to save us. He is going to take us home. He is going to save us. He's going to bring us to a place where there's no more mourning, no more wickedness, no more evil, no more sorrow. There truly is coming a day, in the words of Samwise Gamgee, where everything sad will be made untrue. There's a day coming. Everything sad will be made untrue. So there's salvation that's promised in these verses. But there's also judgment promised in these verses. God is also coming to judge. And there will be people that will mourn in repentance and love for Jesus. And there will be people who will mourn knowing they are to be judged. And they deserve it. And there is no escaping it. That's the point of the rest of the book. God is coming. But he's coming to save and to judge. And so what does that mean for you? God's coming again. But how will you receive him? Who will he be for you? Savior or judge? You don't want to be the enemy of Jesus when he comes back. You don't want to be his enemy. Please. You need to know today, because his return is coming quickly, you need to know today whether or not you will receive him as friend or foe. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8 says that those who are believers, those who are saved, will love his appearing. We're longing for his appearing. Come back to take us home. And we only feel that way because we've met him now a Savior. You don't want to meet him on that day as judge. If you don't know where you would spend eternity, if you died today, if you don't know without a shadow of a doubt where you would spend eternity, or if Jesus came back tonight, if you don't know how he would receive you as judge or as Savior, the Bible says today is the day of repentance. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to turn and trust in Christ. You can meet him that day as friend. I don't want you to meet him as an enemy. Father, we thank you so much for the encouragement and the warning that come from this passage. And God, I pray that you would wake us up. We are a sleepy people. We get lulled into sleep. I pray that you would wake us up. Show us how amazing it will be when you return and let us live in light of that. God, I pray that all of our sorrows would be seen in light of a day coming when sorrows don't exist anymore when you yourself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And God, I pray that you would wake us up to be an urgent, evangelistic people, to be the priests that you have called us to be, giving access to God to others through the gospel. God, I pray that above all, we would glorify and magnify Jesus 
And God, for any in this room that don't know Christ as friend and as Savior, God, I pray that your coming judgment would ultimately be a warning to them, would be concerning to them, would enable them to ask the question, how can I meet God, not as judge, but as friend? And that they would see the provision made through Christ. It's not because of anything that we have done or could ever do. It's because of Jesus' work on the cross and his continuing work now. Our great high priest who loves us, released us from our sins by his shed blood and is coming back to get us. May we worship you now for who you are and for what you've done and promised to do. For